Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Put your seatbelts on, it's a page turner. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begat Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. <clears throat> David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot um, Abijah, Abijah begot Asa, Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers, about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiud, and Abiud begot Eliakim. And thank you, Eliakim begot Azor, and Azor begot Zadok. Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliud. Eliud begot Eliza. Uh, Eliezer begot Matan. Matan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations, and from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. All right, we've, we've hit the dreaded blue screen. Uh, we were going to watch a uh, short clip uh, from uh, the 1981 BBC miniseries uh, written by Douglas Adams of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, it was two hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings uh, approaching a supercomputer called Deep Thought. Uh, now, Deep Thought was a computer uh, that was designed for one purpose, to find the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. And so Deep Thought was created. And uh, when they created Deep Thought, they, they gave it this task. We want you to find the answer to the ultimate question of the universe, life, and everything. And Deep Thought had a little think about it and said, I can do that but it's going to take me a while. Come back in seven and a half million years. So seven and a half million years later, uh, subsequent generations of these hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings turn up to deep thought, uh, awaiting the answer to the question. And just before deep thought gives them the answer, he says, I've got the answer, but you're not going to like it. The answer is 42. Now, uh, this is a bit of a cult kind of book or series or radio show, uh, and so you might have heard before, you know, the, the, the ultimate answer to the ultimate question is 42, a uh, bit of a cult saying. But it's a pretty disappointing answer, really, isn't it? I mean, what kind of answer is 42 to the ultimate question? Uh, do you feel any richer for having heard that? Not really. I didn't, and uh, certainly... Uh, 
the people who had developed the computer and waited seven and a half million years were a bit disappointed. Well, it turns out the reason why the answer didn't make any sense is because they never actually knew the question. As time goes by, they discovered the ultimate question was what do you get when you multiply six by nine? There you go, you satisfied now? Not really. I don't know about you, but that's not really the burning question that I have as the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. But what if, what if deep thought was right? What if the answer actually is 42, but the question was wrong? And what if we discovered the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything, not from a supercomputer, but from a family tree? Well, our first point, a family tree. Thanks, Zach. Uh, who here, when was the last time that you inv in, uh, introduced yourself to someone, maybe at a party or at work or a function, uh, and you introduced yourself by telling them your family tree? Anyone? Recently? Not for a while? Any blokes use it as a pickup line? No? Okay. <laughs> well, I haven't either. It's not exactly the way that uh, we generally go about introducing ourselves. It would be kind of weird, wouldn't it? But there are times when our ancestry, our family tree, is actually really important. Uh, there are times uh, when we need to prove our ancestry and who we are and where we come from. Well, for a Jew, uh, sorry, there's some of the times... It, an example might be when a billionaire dies and some random person pops up claiming uh, to be their long-lost child and wanting a piece of the inheritance. Or when a court is ruling for parental rights and for child support payments. The question of family tree and ancestry is really important at that moment. Or when determining who's next in line to take the throne when the king dies. Or maybe when Billie Jean says she's your lover. <laughs> Family trees do matter at different points, don't they? Well, Matthew starts his Christmas account with a family tree. And it might seem at first like boring details, but for a Jew who was reading this, this family tree was actually like dynamite. This family tree actually was something that would have just blown their minds as they read it. And the reason is because the Jews were waiting for someone. They were waiting for someone particular, someone special, someone with a very, very particular and specific family tree who was the answer to life, the universe and everything. They were waiting for someone who was the answer to all the mess of this world, of evil, of suffering, of sickness, of loneliness, of hatred, of war, of death. They were waiting for someone who was the answer to all of God's promises. And they were, thanks Zach, big promises. Well, like an heir to the throne or an heir to a fortune that status carries with it big promises. Uh, if you're the heir to the throne, that status, that ancestry carries with it 
promises of authority and responsibility. If you're an heir to a large fortune, that ancestry carries with it promises of wealth. Well, in Jesus' family tree, we learn that Jesus was heir to people that God had made incredibly big promises to. Dynamite kind of promises. Well, like all Jews, uh, all Jews' ancestry stretched right back to Abraham, and that's where Matthew starts here. But who was Abraham, and what promises did God make to him? Well, God had promised this man, Abraham, who was a nobody, he just picked out and said, I am going to be your God. I will make of you a great people, a great nation, and I will take you into a great and perfect place. And I will bless you, and actually through you and through your family, I am going to bless the whole world. That's a pretty big promise, isn't it? And then if we follow down that family tree a little bit, we learn about uh, Isaac and Jacob and Jacob who had 12 sons. And these 12 sons became 12 different tribes of the people of Israel. And we see here that of those 12 sons, Jesus is descended from Judah. Now, Judah is someone who God had made big promises to. From Judah's family, from Judah's tribe, that is where kings would come from. And so the people who will hold the scepter, who will rule, will be from the tribe of Judah. Well, jump down a little bit further. We see that actually Jesus is a descendant of King David. Now, this is a really big deal because at this point in time, there are not many descendants of King David left. But not only that, God had made incredibly big promises to David. God had promised to David that one of his descendants would be a king of all kings, a king who would actually rule, not for a little while, not have a good rule or a great rule, but a king who would have a perfect rule and who would rule forever. This is the king they call the Messiah in Hebrew or the Christ in Greek. And this is the one that all the Jews were waiting for. The Messiah, the Christ, the king who would be son of David, son of Judah, son of Abraham. This king would be the one who would overthrow the curse and replace it with blessing. This king would be the one that would topple the mess and replace it with order, who would override the bad with good. This king would put an end to evil because this king is the ultimate answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. And then if we follow uh, our um, family tree down, we, we get a little bit further down from David. You see there's three sections there. We get to that third section and it starts off with something called the exile. Now what's that all about? 
Well, God's people had sinned against God. And so instead of letting his people be in his place, he drove them out to be slaves. And instead of his people being a great nation, he scattered them throughout all the Babylonian Empire, as we saw uh, all through last term as we looked at Esther. And instead of being people who are overflowing with blessings out into the world around them, they had become a curse and a curse word among the nations. And during this time in exile, God's people must have been wondering, well, where is this Messiah? Where is the answer that we're waiting for? And during this time, God spoke to his people. He sent his prophets and said, God has not forgotten you. God has not given up on his promises. God himself will come to you. He will restore his people and make everything new. And so for 1,500 years, as we look at this family tree, we almost see like a a little kind of summary of the promises that God has given. We see little reminders of the promises that the Jews were waiting for. 1,500 years, 42 generations waiting for the Messiah. And all of their hopes, all of their longings, everything is pinned on his arrival. And so Matthew starts the story of Christmas, the story of Jesus, by announcing that this Messiah has come. Have a look at verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We come to the significance of 42. See, coming from David's family didn't automatically guarantee uh, that Jesus would be king. Uh, there were others still hanging around. There probably still are today others who are actually descended from David. And they're not all automatically king. But actually, Matthew draws our attention to more here. Because he gets to the end of his family tree and he draws our attention to the shape of it. Now, who would have thought that the shape of a family tree would mean anything? But this is quite an unusual family tree. You'll notice it doesn't split off. It just follows one line all the way down to Jesus. And the shape of it isn't horizontal. It's vertical. Have a look at verse 17. There were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile to Babylon. And 14, from the exile to the Messiah. Now, if you do your maths, that's 42 generations. Three lots of 14. But there's a real significance there that we would probably miss as Westerners. Now, I know there are some people that... uh, You've probably met people uh, who see significance in numbers all over the place. Have you ever met someone a bit like that? You know, they'll look at your phone number and they'll try to work out something from it or your street address and they'll try to tell you, you know, some significance of eternal value that sounds like gobbledygook. Now, I don't put much stock in numbers generally, but actually the Bible did. And here at this very point, Matthew does. Matthew 
he deliberately draws our attention not to all numbers, but to these numbers, these three sets of 14 generations. And, and he's saying to us, actually, there's something really significant here. Now, throughout the Bible and in the Jewish culture, there were certain numbers that had special significance. Uh, I'll throw it back to you guys. Who can think of a number in the Bible that has some significance? Call, call it out. Three? Yep. Seven? Yep. Twelve? Ten? Forty? Yep. Bunch of numbers. Fantastic. There are certain numbers in the Bible that actually carry significance and they carry a meaning with them. Uh, we've got a few uh, in our vocabulary, but most of them are rude. See, in Jewish culture, in the Bible, 3, 7 and 12 and a few others, they were numbers that symbolised completeness. They symbolised perfection. They symbolised that something was finished and full and whole. And of these numbers, actually 7 is kind of the biggest one. Seven is like the ultimate number of completeness. How many days in a week? Seven. There's a reason for that, because that's how many there are supposed to be. It's complete. God's work of creation was finished. And when Matthew here points our attention to the set of 14 generations, when a Jew heard that or read that, in the back of their mind, they're going 14. Well, that's, that's double seven. That's like double perfection. And when Matthew points to three double sevens that link three, four of the most significant events in Jewish history, he is saying that this 42 generations is a big deal. He's saying there was a completeness from Abraham to David, a completeness from David to the exile and now a completeness from the exile to Jesus. But actually, that's not all. Because three fourteens is the same as six sevens, isn't it? When you split it up. And that means that after six sets of seven, Jesus starts the seventh seven. The arrival of Jesus marks the absolute finality, the completeness of completeness, the fullness of fullness, the ultimate seven, the final seven. The pattern is finished. And so Matthew is showing us that after 42 generations, 1,500-odd years of waiting... Jesus is the answer to all of God's promises. He's the answer to God's promises to Abraham, the answer to God's promises to Judah, to David, and to the Jews in exile. He's the ultimate answer to the ultimate question. He will fix the mess. He will get rid of evil. He will get rid of suffering and sickness and loneliness and hatred and war and death. He is the one they've been waiting for. But not quite how we would have expected. Thanks, Zach. I don't know if you thought about it, but some of the things, you know, some of the things that make God God, 
What do you reckon? What are some of the things that make a God God and other than his creation? Just throw a few things at me. What makes God God? What makes him so different to us? Grace, yeah. Shows undeserved favor. Yep. Any else? Holiness. Holiness. He's completely pure and right. Yep. One more. Sorry? Eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. Well, I think another part of God's godness, because there's so much of it, is actually that he doesn't do things how we would expect him to do them. We can never put God in a box. We can never know what his next move is going to be unless he tells us what it will be. And the funny thing is that even when he tells us what his next move is going to be, when he makes it, he always makes it completely differently to how we thought he was going to make it. See, God is unpredictable, transcendent, beyond our imagination. He's always surprising us by the way he does things. And this is no exception. The arrival of the Messiah after 42 generations, this first Christmas when Christ comes, is just as unexpected and surprising as anything else God's done in history. Because his answer to the mess is to come into the mess. And his solution to the scandal comes through scandal. Now, uh, very helpfully before, Mike, uh, as we were reading, before we were reading, Mike uh, told us to have a little look out as we go and just pay careful attention to the women that we come across. Now, it's very unusual uh, in the ancient Near East, uh, in Jewish culture, or pretty much any culture around there, uh, for that matter, to mention women in your ancestry. And yet Matthew very particularly lists some key women here. And why does he do that? Well, actually, as we look at those women, every single one of those women, in some way, was involved in a bit of a scandal. They were outcasts. They were outsiders. Some of them were immoral. They were all involved in some kind of scandal. And yet, they form the family tree of the Messiah. Now, just in case people might point out these people and and discredit Jesus' claim to that title, if they were to do so, they'd actually have to discredit David because they all either came before David or David slept with one of them and David added one of them in to the family tree himself. See, what does this tell us about God? What does this tell us about his answer the ultimate question. Well, it tells us that God, along the way, has been bringing outsiders and outcasts into his people, into his promise. But of course, Matthew isn't just showing us that this is how God acts. He's also preparing us for what he's about to tell us how God has acted. See, Matthew is preparing to tell the Christmas story and he's preparing to tell us the most scandalous, outrageous, unexpected part of the whole family tree, which is the birth of the Messiah 
to an unwed virgin. Think of the scandal of that. See, God became one of us in the middle of the mess, in the middle of the scandal, in the lowest, most unexpected, most humble way. But actually that was nothing compared to what's coming next. Because the scandal, we know, doesn't finish at Jesus' birth, does it? The greatest scandal comes when the one who came as the answer for outcasts himself is cast out. When the one who's the answer to the mess of death and sin himself died. Now, it doesn't seem like an answer, does it? It seems about as useful an answer as 42. The Messiah came into the mess and seemed to be overcome by the problem he came to solve. But of course, God does the unexpected. Jesus came back to life, not resuscitated, but resurrected, not reincarnated, but risen. He proved in his resurrection that he is the answer that we've been waiting for. He proved he is the Messiah, the Christ. He proved he did actually come to bring blessing to all people. He proved he is the king that can rule forever in the line of David because after he died, he rose and conquered death. So death cannot touch him. He proved that he's the answer for the outcasts because he himself was cast out and then welcomes us in. But it does leave us in a little bit of a pickle still, doesn't it? Because he came and then he left again. We still live in the mess. It's not what we expected. We thought that when he came, he would fix everything then and there. But he's waiting. He did the work back there at the cross. But he hasn't cashed the check yet. He's letting it build interest. He's won the battle already, but he hasn't yet come to claim his prize. He's done what he needed to do to fix everything once and for all, but he's waiting to allow more, more outcasts, like every one of us, to come in to his promises, to come in and enter in to his people. So the seventh seven is still going. The seventh seven is locked open until Christ returns and brings an end to this world for good. When he makes everything new, when that last enemy death will be defeated forever. And we can fall into a trap, can't we, uh, of thinking that Jesus didn't do enough now. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like, you know, Jesus came, but I just wish he'd done a bit more. You know, why didn't he get rid of sickness? Why didn't he get rid of death? Why didn't he stop all this evil? You know, why didn't he do more now and here? And sometimes we feel like we need more than his promises. Sometimes we feel like we kind of have to make that up ourselves. You know, we have to sort of reach out and take what we can 
of this world and grab it. Sometimes we get disillusioned and we give up on Jesus because we feel like he didn't do enough. He didn't do enough now. But actually, as we read this genealogy, actually, this genealogy, this family tree is really helpful for us when we feel like that. Next time you feel a bit disillusioned with what Jesus has and hasn't done yet, I want to encourage you, go back to Matthew and read this genealogy. Read this family tree. Why? Because it took 42 generations from Abraham until glimpses of the promises God made were fulfilled. Abraham had to learn to wait and trust God that he would fulfill his promises even though Abraham knew he would not see them fulfilled in his lifetime. David, when God promised him that one of your descendants will rule forever, David was smart enough to know that, well, one of my descendants, that's after I'm dead and I'm not ruling anymore. David knew the Messiah would come after his death. The Jews in exile had to learn that the answer would come even though that meant generations of them would die, scattered, dispersed, cursed under foreign powers. So there's lots for us to learn here in this family tree. We need to learn and pray that God will teach us to learn to wait, to wait on his promises, to wait on Christ's return when he finally comes and fixes everything for good. After generation, 42 generations of promises, the answer is Jesus.